All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Actually, I think it's morning. Good morning, everybody, uneducated <laughs> economists. It's afternoon. We're Matthew Zach, guy, the lumberjack landlord with us today. Really excited to talk with him. Uh, lumberjack landlord is probably one of my favorite guests to have on. I haven't done a whole lot of interviews, but he is so knowledgeable when it comes to the rental market and understanding what it is that you need to do in order to be a successful landlord. And so, Matthew, Thank you for being here. Um, Excited. Please introduce yourself as far as like what it is that you do. Sure. So I'm the Lumberjack Landlord. I've got uh, 135 units uh, that we rent out. It's over 47 buildings. So we really specialize in small multifamily, kind of the dupes, tries, and quads, uh, duplexes, triplexes, and quadplexes. Uh, I've been doing it for about 22 years. Um, started the business on my own, um, work with my wife. And uh, I think my biggest claim to fame is I'm a ninth grade dropout, so... We're just trying to put pieces together and make business work. Yeah, very cool. You know, that's the thing, like even myself, like I, I graduated high school, but barely graduated high school. And uh, I tell you, I hate to admit it, but I kind of cheated my way through it. So, um, you know, so yeah, I probably should have been a ninth grade job out myself, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I really like going to school because that's where all the girls were at, you know? And so that's, understandable. Anyway, that's, that's, that was like, that was my, uh, my whole thing about going to high school is to for the social hour of being there. Um, so tell us, Matthew, what got you into real estate? Like what happened that got you like motivated to to get that first property? Yeah. So what really got me motivated was um, I was, you know, ninth grade dropout and I owned a bunch of small businesses. Um, even as a teenager, you know, it was sports cards and you see some like matchbox cars behind me and we would do shows and stuff like that and buying and selling and trading and bartering and that sort of stuff. And then um, I got a job as a telemarketer, the person that everyone loves to hate. Um, and so I got a job as a telemarketer and then I got promoted into sales in the business that I was in. Um, and so got into sales and then started making money. And I was like, what do I do with this money? Um, I'd never had money before we grew up and didn't really have much money. And, um, we lived kind of, you know, paycheck to paycheck. My mom was a broker, um, a real estate broker, uh, for a number of years. And because she was a single mom, we went on a lot of showing appointments on Saturdays. So our Saturdays were not at home watching cartoons and having fun as kids. Our Saturdays were getting in the car with mom and going on showings for like three or four hours, <clears throat> especially with one family from, from Michigan. They were awful. <laughs> Like, they never, they never, they never bought anything, but it was like a, a month and a half worth of Saturdays. So we got in, so she was into that. And then when we were finally old enough to stay home alone, we were able to do that. But, uh, I started making money, um, in selling software. And when I started making money selling software, I was like, all right, where do I put this? And so I put it in the stock market and everybody at the Waller cooler talking about the stock market and this stock and that stock and learning how to do research on my own and trying to figure it out. And there wasn't YouTube and heaven forbid, there was no uneducated economist <laughs> telling me how the system was, was a little bit slanted. So I'm kind of looking at it and I'm like, yeah, let's invest. And then um, the dot-com bomb happened, the dot-com crash. And I went from, and I was lucky enough to buy Cisco at its absolute highest it had ever been in history. Uh, it did nothing but go down. And then I bought two other companies that went out of business because of fraud. <laughs> Jeez. One of them, oh, one of them was, uh, one of them was Enron. And then the other one was, um, uh, a little company called ECNC that did cash pads. Uh, but they, they basically made me go bust. Um, and I just said, I don't like the stock market. It feels a little bit rigged. I'm not 
downtown Manhattan. I'm not in the big boardrooms making these conversations. And I started to really kind of step back and look at it and say, I probably could have done better, but I definitely I'm on the outside looking in. And that's when I started thinking, I've got to start making money another way because I didn't want to work my entire life. I didn't want, want to work my 40 for my 40, um, you know, for my 40%. So I just said, I got to find a different way. And that's when I, as I looked at real estate, it's something I okay understood. You know, I knew what a house was. Um, and I knew the people bought them. Um, and then it was just understanding kind of the landlord game. And so uh, there was no YouTube really then. Um, as far as like people posting anything other than music. And I just started to do research and trying to understand it and talk to my mom's friends. My mom had passed away and started talking to my mom's friends that were brokers. Um, and they just said, yeah, you know, there's something called landlording and this is kind of what it can be. And went down that path and uh, kind of haven't looked back since. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, that's pretty cool. You know, I, it was like the failure that did it for you, right? It was yeah. like that, that yeah. man, what's going on here? The stock market isn't doing it for me. I need to find this other way. And, you know, and that's where you found this passion for for getting into real estate and doing the landlord game. Tell me about that first property. How'd you find it? What'd you think? Like, what got you to like find this thing? Like say, okay, this is it. This is my moment. This is where I'm going to jump. Tell us yeah. about that. So it was really, um, you know, kind of, it was kind of funny because I, we, I was, I was working in tech. I was driving 80 miles each way every day to, to work. I hated it. Uh, I was like, I lived my life in a car and I was like, I need something closer. And, but everything that was close enough was too expensive. And so I started asking buddies and saying, Hey, you're looking to move. You're looking to move. Would you like to move? And so they were like, Oh yeah. You know, one of them was like, yeah, I'm definitely looking for a place. You know, let me know if, if you, you want to, you know, do get something together, <clears throat> excuse me. And I said, I think I'm going to buy a place and then I'll rent you a room if that's cool. And he's like, yeah, that that's cool. And so I knew if I bought a great place, I'd never have trouble getting a roommate. So my very first purchase was a house hack. Um, I, I bought a condo um, that was uh, only about 20, 20 miles from work, which was just utopia for me. Um, and I, you know, basically had a contract uh, with this uh, lease with uh, this buddy of a buddy and uh, he moved in. And the only way that I could actually qualify for that house was by house hacking it. I couldn't afford the mortgage payment on my own, but because I had a signed lease and because I was going to be an owner occupant, they were willing to count that uh, rental income uh, towards the, towards the purchase of that house. So I had the down payment, but I didn't have, uh, I didn't make enough money to qualify for the full mortgage. So having a renter renting one of the two rooms, I lived in one and he lived in the other. Um, it may, it bridged the gap for me. So that's what I teach a lot now is just basically house hacking. Um, that's, that's how I've, I've built my, uh, built my empire. So the house hacking, that's a pretty interesting. So like kind of, um, describe that again for our viewers in case they quite kind of didn't quite get that. Like yeah. what does house hacking mean? Yeah. So basically what it is, is it, you typically, you can do it in a, in a quadplex, a triplex, a duplex, or a single family home or condo. Um, basically the premise is, you have enough money for the down payment, but you don't financially qualify for the mortgage because you only make X amount. And so what they'll actually accept is if you're willing to rent out one of the rooms and put that person under lease, just a normal lease, regular leasing contract, um, they will actually count that income towards your monthly nut of what you need to make in order to be able to afford the payment. And I couldn't afford the payment on my own with my own income. Um, so I was able to get uh, a, a buddy that was able to rent a room and 
Um, it was a more expensive area. And so the room was about a thousand dollars a month. Um, and that was able to bridge the gap. Cause I think my mortgage was about 2,500 a month. The difference was, is I had the money to put down to buy a place. Um, and he didn't. So that's what we did. Nice. So that worked out really well. And that's, um, that's how you got into the game. So tell me like when you decided, okay, I got this first <laughs> property. How quickly did you decide to get the next property? Yeah. So I, I kind, it kind of didn't occur to me what I was really doing. It occurred to me that I had a roommate. It occurred be, because we didn't have the same schedule. Uh, so it occurred to me that I had a roommate and, but it really started to occur to me, I'm really making this work. Like I can afford a really nice place with a roommate. Um, and so I looked at it and I just said, you know, this might be something I can do. And so I started to look at other properties um, but not in that area. And I just, I, I didn't love the area that I was in. I didn't, I wanted to be closer to home. Uh, lifestyle in New Hampshire is a lot different than lifestyle in Massachusetts. Um, there's a reason they call Massachusetts Taxachusetts. Um, <laughs> and in New Hampshire, it's live free or die. That's our state motto. And I so we don't have income tax. We don't have sales tax. Um, we had, I had a car that I went to go register in Massachusetts and inspect it and it was and insure it. And it was going to be like $6,000. And that same thing in New Hampshire was 800 bucks. Oh I was gosh. like, I was like, I need to live back in New Hampshire. I need to get back to home. Um, and so, uh, so I started to look at things and say, I need, I have some money. I'm saving up money. I didn't have a big lifestyle. Um, you know, I drove a car that, that rivaled your Camry. Uh, uh, 19, <laughs> yeah. 19, 1992 Pontiac Bonneville with, uh, 224,000 miles on it. And, uh, I think they use the same headliner company. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, sans fuzzy dice. Um, but yeah, like, you know, so it was like, I would buy cars like that for 12 to 1500 bucks. Uh, I'd trade for them. Uh, I'd trade work for it, whatever I needed to do to trade for something like that. And then I would use it for a year, year and a half, maybe two years. And then it would have a quarter million or or 300,000 miles on it. And so I'd swap it or sell it. Um, and I'd get something else that was equally as disappointing. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so that's what I did for years. And so, uh, but I looked at it and I just said, I really want to get back uh, to New Hampshire. And so I uh, found a property, was able to do a deal with some seller financing, uh, even back then, 20 years ago. Um, I overpaid for the house, admittedly, uh, but the seller financing was a decent deal. And so then I got that house and then I was uh, sold my condo. Um, what was amazing about the condo was it was not all easy. When I sold the condo that we get a $70,000 assessment against the condo associate, or it was actually a $5 million assessment against the condo association. My share was going to be 70 K because the builder had used the wrong material on the skin of the building. And it was too close to salt water and it failed, but the builder was out of business. So we had to find a way to come up with it. So I went to go sell it. And my agent says, are you aware of the assessment? And I was like, cause I'm getting giddy. I'm like, man, I'm going to make like 60 grand on this thing. And like almost in like two and a half years. And she's like, yeah, there's an assessment and you're part 70,000 bucks. And I go, yeah, good story. I don't have $70,000, not until I sell this. So when I sold it, I think I walked away with about 8,000 bucks. Oh, yeah. Oh, heartbreaking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was bad. Oh, That's why I needed to do a seller finance deal was because I had a little bit of money, but when I sold it, I wasn't going to get near the windfall I thought I was going to get. Um, and so it's not all peaches and rainbows in real estate land. 
Um, and so ended up selling it and then uh, moved to this other place, was going to get a roommate and then got put on the road uh, kind of for my job for the next two years. Um, mm-hmm. So I still kept an eye on the market, kept on watching it. Um, and then I had the chance to buy a multifamily, a three unit. And I was like, I'll move into that. And the, at that point, they were they were able to do loans where they weren't the liar loans. We weren't getting the two and 28s where it was like a two year, a payment for two years that was really low. And then it ballooned up to 28. We weren't getting the ninja loans, the no income, uh, no job, no assets. We weren't getting those. Um, and so I, I basically bought my first multifamily and on a monthly basis, I think it made about $400, $500. I bought wrong. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was, that was the first real investment property that it was going to be kind of purely the plan was to move into it, but then I got put on the road and so then it was just to be like, uh, you know, purely basically house hacking, which was living in one unit and then the other two. Um, so that was, that was kind of the first real true investment property that was going to be a true house hack, not with just somebody living in my unit with me. Mm-hmm. And so that was like the third property, fourth property. Yeah, that was the that was the that was the uh, that was the third one. But my active that was my second one. Yeah, so I had sold the other one to get the others, but just start climbing up that ladder. It would have been uh-huh. a different story had I not lost seventy thousand bucks on that stupid assessment. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's a pretty heartbreaking part of like that seventy yes. grand. Like you're thinking you're going to get this, and then it's not completely gone. Um, other than that story, is there another like moment there that just really was heartbreaking? Like, man, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to quit like the whole idea, but then, you know, you, you push through it. So like, cause a lot of people, they get discouraged, you know, sure. and you know that that's going to happen. So tell us that heartbreaking story, not the 70 grand one, but another one that, that might, that, you know, was going to take you out, but it didn't, you know? Yeah. Um, every day from 2000, the end of 2008 until about 2010, <laughs> I, I just I should have excluded the great financial grinds. <laughs> yeah, waking up every day in my nightmare. Yeah, I mean it was horrible. It was really really hard. You know, we knew our tenants were hurting, but we weren't that much better off than our tenants. I was a small mom and pop landlord, and this was uh, this was I had acquired another couple properties um, before I met my wife. Um, then I met my wife, and my gift to her was obviously myself. Um, and that was an amazing kind of first few months of marriage. And then it instantly went in the toilet because we got married, uh, the, the middle of 2007. And that's just about when the market started to go tough. And then it was just the roller coaster ride, but everything was trending downward. Um, and so the nightmare story was we went from in, uh, in August of 08, we went from eight paying tenants in September to three paying tenants in October to one paying tenant. And so every day I went to work and every day that my wife went to work, we were going to work to just pay off those mortgages on those rental properties. Um, but admittedly it was a thousand percent a mistake on my part, not really understanding the, the concept of diversification within my tenant pool. And so I had, I thought it was a really good idea because construction was so bulletproof I mean, I was 24 years old. Uh, no, I was 20, 28 years old. Um, but I thought, hey, construction's so bulletproof, their guys are never going to lose their jobs. So all of my tenants were in construction in oh. 08. <laughs> I was yeah, like- I was in construction in 08 too. Stupid, so I- <laughs> stupid, stupid. It was such a bad idea. 
But again, I thought myself, I thought to myself, well, that's never going to change. But one of the things that you learn in doing business over time is that you need to have a level of diversification, even within your business. Um, you know, if you're only selling decking, you're probably going to end up having a problem. But if you're selling a myriad of things, then when decking kind of tails off in the wintertime, you're selling something else in, you know, in the wintertime that actually is going to keep up with it, sand and salt or, you know, something like that. So and that's what was snow pellets. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now you're doing, yeah, exactly. Now you're doing pallets of stove pellets and, and uh, you know, cords of firewood and things like that. So that's basically what happened there. And it was that 08 was devastating because we got, we went eight, three, one, and we literally got to the point where we had to borrow money to evict the people that weren't paying. Oh, wow. Yeah. So <laughs> Wow. Uh, I never thought about that. Had to borrow money to actually get somebody out of your property. Um, That's incredible. So um, not to keep lingering on this bad time. It's it's okay. So, so when it came, so you knew you were in bad times in this OA. And so you're, you're in like, you know, like, you know, you're diving, you're getting to the bottom of this dip inside of like, you know, are we going to be able to get through this or not? Mm -hmm. So you're pushing through at this point. When the when the things do turn around and you notice that things are going to start getting better, how long did it actually take to recover from the time that you thought, okay, well, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to keep going. How long did you push before you actually started seeing like the profits again? And um, it was uh, so it was even more than that. It was getting the people out and then having to rehab some of the units because they destroyed them. A couple of people just just flat out destroyed the units. Um, and so again, we learned a lot just from that process because now I'm 22 years in, I've only done nine evictions. So I had, I had four that I paid for right around there. And so I stayed at the number four for a real long time, um, which just because we changed our business model. And so the thing that was most, uh, kind of scary about that process is that, you know, having to borrow money to, to get people out and then we actually lowered the rent to get amazing tenants. And so we got amazing tenants in there that actually paid their rent um, (laughs) and paid their utilities. And so that was really good. Um, But I I kind of had that moment where, you know, I think, I think Warren Buffett says it best, you know, when everyone else is afraid and fearful, you know, you dive in, you go. And that's kind of what we did. I looked at it and said, is this the direction that I want to go or isn't it? And I said, this is, and that means that I need to go all in. And that was everything. So we literally absolutely everything that we could, anything that we could sell, anything we did it and went all into real estate. Um, And literally the, the plan that I had to come up with was banks at that point. So they, you used to be able to get 10 Fannie Freddie loans or mortgage loans in your name, 10. Wow. (laughs) Yep, You can get 10. And so then during the crash, they brought it down to four. Well, I was stuck because I already had five. So the only people that would then lend to me were banks. And the problem is banks, they wanted to see awesome balance sheets. My balance sheet sucked. (laughs) (laughs) It it was, I mean, you'd have to throw some meat on it to get a dog to play with it. Like it was bad. And so, but we looked at it and I just said, that's all right. We're going to figure it out. We're going to go all in. We're just going to figure it out. We're going to figure it out. We're going to go all in. That's what we're going to do. And so then I talked to some banks and I just said, Hey, what if I moved into the house? And they're like, what do you mean? I said, well, not an investment loan. What if I moved into the house and it was an owner occupied loan? What's the rule? They said, well, you have to live there for at least a year. I go, that's easy. Not a problem. 
So I started buying some of these horrible foreclosures that were completely disgusting homes. And I basically tried to figure out how I could move in there, make it livable, and then make it nice. Um, and so that's what we did. We literally, we wanted to move closer to my wife's family. And so we bought a house that had been abandoned. It actually was a drug house. Um, and the bank still owned it. We were able to buy it for about 150 K. Um, and in the peak of the market here, that was worth probably about 250 K. So we bought it for 150 K. I got what's called a 203 K streamline loan, which means the bank was going to give me $35,000 to rehab it. And I went through the process calling contractors, partnering up with people saying, I'll be your right-hand man. You know, and I was trying to find people that would work after hours. So if they'd work like five to 11, I'd finish my day job and I'd go work with them from five to 11. I'd be like, I, I don't, I'm not a skilled carpenter at, at, by any stretch, but I'm an extra set of hands and I'm an extra set of muscles that can lift things. So whatever it is that you need. And so I basically act as apprentice to a bunch of these guys, um, tile guys and uh, flooring guys and framers um, you name it, uh, and just did whatever I had to. And we got into this house and we were able to do it and got the loan, got it done. Uh, we got paid back the $35,000 to get all the work done. And then we were in that property and we were renting that one out for $1,600 on one side. We were living on the other side. It was a duplex. And we, that $1,600 covered our mortgage was about 2000 bucks a month. So we were then paying $400 a month for rent instead of a full house payment. Wow. Because our tenant was basically paying our mortgage for us. Yeah. So yeah, that, but the, that was the, the aha moment. That was a light bulb moment of, I just need to make it an owner rock. I need to just move into it and I can live through to the construction dust and the noise. And I can live through all that stuff. Um, and, you know, working five to 11 at night um, after I worked my, you know, crazy day job that started usually around 7am, just, I would just work. So we worked a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, that sounds like the the key to it all is the dedication that you had yes. put to it. Like you didn't see it any other way. No. And that's really what it what it comes down to is like, and that's what I tell a lot of people is just like in order to be successful at a lot of stuff, you just really can't see it any other way. Like this is just the way it's gonna be and that's the way it's gonna go. Yeah, my option um, was my option was quit and work for someone else forever. Right. That was my other option. And that's scary was, as hell. Uh, right. I wasn't willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So tell us where you are today. Like, you know, so that was kind of like, you know, back in the day, you've progressed mm -hmm. into 135 properties. Yeah. Yeah. So that's um, learned yeah, a lot that of lessons. feel like, like overwhelming to me. Like I can't imagine just having like five properties, but <laughs> yeah. 135, I mean, holy moly. You kind of, I mean, we grew a lot the last two or three years just because we, we had the capital to do so. And so I'm a more conservative investor. Uh, I'm not one of those 95, five guys where it's like, if I can just get 5% into a deal, I'm going to do it because it's no money down. And so it's like, I want equity as well as I build the, as I build the company. Um, but yeah, it feels pretty good now, you know, 12, uh, you know, 15 years after the major crash, um, it feels pretty good now. But the fact of the matter is, is in the last two or three years, anybody that bought real estate looked pretty smart, no matter how dumb they are. Um, and so there's a lot of investors that have gotten into it and, and haven't, because everything has won, they've not had a lot of looking back on it and reflection of having to do great deals. Their deals, a lot of people got lucky. Um, some people, you know, if you were in a market that had a bunch of iBuyers, 
you made a ton of money if you were in real estate because the iBuyers were buying stuff from investors like me. And we were giggling the entire time. We're just like, you, your algorithm sucks. It's broken. You're going to get crushed because they had factored in uh, rent raises and appreciation at the rate that it had occurred the last year or two. And that's why, wow. that's why they're Say that again. Tell our viewers that again. That, that's very interesting. What you just said there. Sure. So the reason why you see that Zillow and open door and OfferPad, a lot of these I buyers, they wouldn't take, and Simon knows this better than anybody is every house equal. If it's the same amount of square footage. No, not even close. Some of them are 1930s vintage. Some of them are 1980s. Some of them are 2000. Some are 2015. The building regulations that were in place then are completely different. Um, the quality of builder was completely different as you go builder to builder. Some people would use builder grade minus materials. Some people would use custom materials. And so the challenge that you have is that they had an algorithm, AI, artificial intelligence, that they ran saying this property in this area is worth this right now. And because of the last 12 months, 18 months and 24 months of appreciation, we believe it's going to appreciate at that rate moving forward so we can buy it for this. And investors like me, we didn't have iBuyers in my market, which is, you know, which is why I still wear a sweatshirt and a hat is because I didn't get super wealthy. I saw friends in Phoenix and Vegas and uh, places like that get very wealthy because they would buy a house off market. They would rehab it. And then when they were finished with it, they would just out of sheer curiosity, call an iBuyer say, Hey, yeah, I've got this property. And they're like, okay, we'll give you that you know, for, we'll give you 500 for that. And we can close in seven days. And they're just like, uh, okay, sounds good. I was hoping for 470, but I'll take 500. And that's what pushed up the price in a lot of these different markets, the markets that you'll see that'll be the most affected. You know, Phoenix is going to be pretty badly affected. Uh, I think Seattle will be pretty badly affected. Um, but the I buyers and the wall street institutional buyers, they're really kind of focused on about 50 markets. And so not being yeah. in those markets actually helps. It's it's that it's it's really it's incredible. not higher highs. Yeah, it's it's basically it's lower highs and higher lows. So you trade more in a range as opposed to like Phoenix. It's like this, and then it's like this, you know. And so mine's kind of like I kind of bounce around like the wave, you know. Yeah, but that's really interesting to think about, like how because like if I'm getting you right about like with the way these buyers are coming up with these prices is that if they had actually taken the average back like five, six years, seven years, that these prices wouldn't do that. But since they did it in a, such a short amount of time mm -hmm. that the elevated prices is what's given them the averages that they're looking for in order to get those higher prices out there or not necessarily looking for, but right. that's what, what is occurring on there. Yeah. They that's largely really I never thought about it like that. They largely believe that that velocity would continue. And that's mm -hmm. where all of us investors were like, guys, that doesn't work like that. And it was a longer cycle. So this year, you know, this time around, it was going to be about a nine year to 10 year cycle. And the economy was trailing in 19, starting to trend downward. And then in 20, we get hit with the blessed health event. Um, and then when that happened and money started getting poured into the market, it Everyone was cautious. I did a bunch of deals in the beginning of 2020 because I had never seen rates anywhere near that for investors. And that for me, it was cost of money. And I wasn't afraid. I was like, 
Worst case scenario is I'm locked in on an asset that might go down 10% in the next year, but it's my cash flow. My cash flow day one when I buy it with a three and a half percent rate, which investors never get, it was, you know, pure utopia. And that's where the reverse is true now, where you have people with, you know, four, three, three percent mortgages that now can't move from their homes because they can't afford a seven percent mortgage on a house that might be bigger and still a hundred thousand bucks more, but that makes their payment more than double. So they're right. locked in staying into their homes because they've got a two and a half or a 3% mortgage. Never in history that I can recall, um, I'm only 45, but never in history can I recall where your house was as big of an asset as the debt on your house was an asset. If you have two and a half percent debt, that's an asset. I can sell that asset debt. I can, you know, I can do something called a sub two mortgage. There's a bunch of ways to get access to that capital. Um, and get somebody to pay you for that loan. And you know, you can sell that two and a half percent debt and they can give you 50,000 bucks on top of that, you know? And now that debt on your house is now an asset if you have two and a half or 3% debt. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Like, I never thought about that. That's why I love talking to you, Matthew. You always make me think about things. <laughs> like, sure. But that's something interesting to think about because you have a mortgage at 3% and if mortgages are out there at 7%, yep. that makes your mortgage worth money to somebody of, out there a lot of money right a lot yeah. of money because you're only money. paying three percent on this big old loan right and yeah. people are looking at it, they're going dude that's a hell of a position to be in i would love to have that so this is to? so this is my this is my trusty spreadsheet that's horrible and glare but basically in 720 uh so basically july of 20 the rates were 3.07 percent and that meant you had a 1400 payment in in January of 21, a uh, median home was 369 and you had a 2.65% mortgage, which meant your payment was only 1486. If you fast forward to now, even with in 10 of 22, which is basically Q3 of 22, you've got at that time, you had a 6. Point, you had a 2700 having to go down. you to have the same payment you want. 47% is what you have to occur. You're buying investment price. I'm buying at 4%. At, you know, 7%. I'm buying at 4%. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. 
pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. You know, Matthew, I think we're, I'm losing you here. Uh-oh, I think we lost connection here. I can hear you. Oh, can? can you okay. Me? Yep. Yeah, I think me? we're back. All right, yep. cool. So the the biggest so the biggest challenge was I was buying the debt as much as I was buying the asset. Right. You know, because for me it was like I knew what my rents were. I knew I knew what it would rent out for. And that's that was what meant of these crash two years and didn't buy anything. Thank God you bought your house. You know, I I'm looking at it right now and I, I totally agree. Like I was scared to do it at the time. I really was. I was looking at these house prices and I'm thinking, man, this is unrealistic. They're too high, you know, and all this stuff. But now the position that I'm in and looking out at the environment, I'm really glad that I did get into the house when I did. I mean, the interest rate is low, the payment I can afford, you know, it's, it's a nice house. So yeah, I don't think I could be in a better position today than, than I, than I took back then. So yeah, I'm glad I did it. Um, if, if you, if your house went down a hundred thousand dollars tomorrow, would you sell it? No, exactly. Would you sell it if it went down 150,000 bucks? No, I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I have no, no. I mean, just simply because I just don't think I could find a place to, that would equal it. Like, I just don't think I could, you know? Right. And that's the thing that a lot of people miss as that investors really understand that a lot of home buyers don't necessarily really view it that way. I get it. You're looking for a home. I bought my own personal home. I closed on it in January of 2020. That's when I closed on my home, my <laughs> own personal home. And they were like, dude, the world is falling apart. It had just started. And I was just like, I got 3.75 debt. Like I, I, was, I was thrilled. And now, and it's like the house went up 30% or 32% in the last two years. Even if it goes down that 32%, I don't care. I have 3.75 debt. I can't buy the same house that I have now for the same number because the market value either has to come down 47% based on a 6.7 mortgage or rates have to crash and values have to crash which ask any economist, that's really hard to do. It's going to be really difficult it's to really do. Hard right. to do. It's really sticky on the way down. eh? So mm -hmm. it makes it tough, but yeah. Um, so let me ask you mm -hmm. right now is a very questionable time. Yeah. And there's a lot of people out there who, who look at this real estate game and then they want to get in, mm -hmm. but it's scary right now. Oh, so yeah. what's your advice? What's your advice for somebody who is brand new? They don't own any properties. They might have like, say, $30,000, $40,000 sitting in the bank and they want to play They want to play in the real estate game. What do they do? What's the first yes. step? I think the very first step is understand what where you want your market to be. And so the way that we kind of understand the market that we want to be in, I knew I wanted to be back home. That wasn't going to change for me. Typically where people are renting is typically where they want to live or pretty darn close. Right. And the idea is if you can't rent or you can't buy right where you are, the idea is you basically draw concentric circles. A good buddy of mine says that Dion talk, 
um, you build some concentric circles and you basically just figure out how far out you need to go from that point to be able to start buying something that actually cash flows. And so I think the, the first, the only piece of advice I give people is if you're concerned first and foremost about buying a single family home, that's only for you. And that's the only thing you're really concerned with. That is a much, much, much slower way to invest. If you're looking to become an investor and build even a small portfolio of just two or three or four properties that will make you a multimillionaire by the time you're ready to retire, if you're in your twenties or thirties, then the best way to do it is to house hack. You find a quadplex, ideally a triplex or a duplex, any of those work, but you find some multifamily where when you buy it and you move in, that rent is going to cover 70, 80, 90% of your monthly nut. Um, of your monthly mortgage payment. So I did this with a 25 year old kid. Um, he's uh, he's a, uh, an apprentice electrician, um, doesn't make a ton of money. Um, he was able to buy a fourplex um, because of a first time home buyer program for about $8,500 out of pocket based on how he negotiated the deal. So we negotiated the deal. He was about 8,500 bucks out of pocket. He now, he's been in the property for about 15 months and he, uh, makes a thousand dollars a month to live there for free. Wow. Nice. Now he so didn't he, say he doesn't even have to pay for his place. And he earns money off of this from an $8,500 down. Is that basically yep. what it 8, started? 8,500. So he's already wow. gotten a full return on the money that he put down on the property. So he's like, basically like, He's got all, he's playing with the house money. House like, money. The, like it was done. Like he's house, like house, house money in just over a year. And he's 25. Wow. He's 25. Now what he didn't say was I want a white pick fence in a nice yard. He didn't say that. He didn't say, well, I want a really nice high rise condo. Didn't say that. He said what I need a place that I can live. that's safe. And one that I can make that puts me in position <clears throat> financially to put more money aside and save more money myself. Um, and so we found this property. I did all the work with him. We went through it. Um, like I said, eight and a half thousand bucks down, 25 year old kid. He's been there a little over a year, um, got all of his money back out of it, but now he's looking for the next one. He's looking for the next one where he can do a three. And the thing is, is that he'll move, he'll find a three, he'll find a three unit. He'll be able to invest in that. Likely the two people that are living there will pay his mortgage for him. He'll live there for free again. He'll save up more money, another year, another 18 months, another 24 months and he'll buy another one. And so I call it the four, three, two, one strategy, which is you buy a quad, then you buy a try, you buy a dupe, and then you get to your single family home. And if you want to stay there forever, stay there forever. We bounced around. I moved nine times in 13 years living in anything I could get a loan on because I was doing the work and I wanted to build, you know, something, a real estate empire that was going to last. So I moved nine times in 13 years just to get the best deal I could possibly get. I didn't live in a single family home by myself until I was over 40 years old and now I'm 45, but people can absolutely do it. They just really need to recognize, sure. It's a short-term sacrifice for an unbelievable, massive long-term payoff because you look at any 30 year period in history and real estate has done pretty well in any 30 year. Yeah, that's for sure. And that's so you know, and I think it's the attitude going in, like you were saying though, you know, when you go in with reality, in mind, like the realism of this, I got to work hard. I'm not going to be making a ton of money off of this. I will eventually, but right now I need to get the job done. And a lot of times like people will, 
you know, they'll have like the stars in their eyes or something like that. You know, they're going to be like, man, this property is going to be worth a million dollars in six months and I'm going to be out of here or something. (laughs) And, and that's not like, you know, that's not realistic. Like, you know, it's, it's about a game plan following through on that and sticking to it. Um, Man, that's awesome. I love hearing that story of a 25 year old getting his place like that. I mean, I wish I had done something like more when I was younger, you know, it took me to 40 to figure things out and, you know, so like hearing these stories, that's like, it's, insp- it's inspirational, not only for me, but for other people out there to, who want to get started in it, to know that it's not that, that it's not impossible, you it's know, really it's hard, hard to do it, but it's sure. not, it's not impossible. You know? It's, it's hard work. It's sacrifice. You know, there are the get rich quick schemes. There's, you know, wholesaling, but most wholesalers fail. There's real estate agents, but most real estate agents fail. Um, there's, you know, special kinds of financing that you can get, but most of those people fail. So you can do all that stuff, but a majority of those people fail. The re- what I've really tried to cultivate is all you're doing is living your life just a little bit different. You are just a little bit different. You know, for him, I said, so you're getting crushed by tenant calls. He goes, no, like a lot of months pass. And I don't even get one call from a tenant. And he's like, it's, un- it's unbelievably easy. And I think a lot of times it can be that. And so for us, you know, we self-manage our properties. I've got 135 units. I've got 400 tenants and we self-manage. I have a full-time job and my wife is a full-time mom of, of three kids under five. And so we, we, but we able to manage it full-time and you have to have good, good contractors that you work with. You can send them a text message and say, Hey, this came up, but this is not something that dominates, you know, it's not something that dominates our lives. It's really something that when properly managed, we can kind of componentize it. But the four, three, two, one strategy is the one that I would encourage most people to just try to understand and experience because it can absolutely set you up for life. And there's no 30 year period in history where that, where that's a loser. There just isn't, you know, you can even look at the seventies and in the seventies with as bad as the seventies were and the 70s stock market basically was flat for a decade, but wages increased. But if you look at the seventies, house prices doubled in the seventies. And most people don't know that. And that's even with rates going from seven to, I think they were nine or 10 by the end of the decade. And then in the early eighties, they went 10, 12, and then all the way up to 16. And then what's really interesting is I think you, you know, I'd love your opinion on it. Interest rates are a lot stickier than people think. They're a lot stickier because you look at what happened in the, they were that concerned about breaking inflation that they took the rate to 16%. And it was there for two years and it was climbing up. And then at 16, it still then hit 14 and then 13 and then 12 and then tens. But if you look at like the late seventies to basically the late eighties, it took a decade for rates to get back down below 10 where they were even close to what they were in the late seventies. So I don't think this big fed pivot where they're going to go all of a sudden from raising 50 basis points to minus 50 basis points and all the banks are building in just a ton more margin into all these deals. Usually it's a 200 basis point spread between the Fed funds rate and then what a bank's going to charge you. And in a lot of cases now it's 350, you know, yeah. or 400. So that range will shrink and people will feel a little bit good because they think that the rates have come down. Technically they've come down, but they sort of kind of haven't. It's just a margin compression from the banks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I honestly, I don't see even if the federal reserve was to back off on their interest rate hikes 
I don't see interest rates coming down, not in the markets, not in the treasuries, not on mortgage-backed securities, none of that stuff do I see interest rates coming down. Um, so long as the Federal Reserve continues to unwind their balance sheet, which they have no intentions on on slowing down on any of that. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, from what I kind of feel, they might even ramp that up a little bit. So um, as far as like, you know, a dramatic churn of events or something like that, like, I don't I don't think so. Um, I think this is going to be kind of the environment that we're going to go into. Okay. Um, with that also being said, I also don't think that interest rates are going to go that much higher on the mortgage-backed securities either mm -hmm. um you know like i think around i mean they, they could i mean who you know i can't predict the future but at some point you know when the federal reserve is unloading those mortgage-backed securities off their balance sheet there's an investor on the other side of that who does yeah. want to buy into that bond you know those mortgage-backed securities is like a bond and so when you have interest rates or a fixed income that gets up to around that 8% or something like that, that's a pretty decent return for somebody. And mm -hmm. when most people do make their mortgage payments, I just see that the investors would be buying into that market. So I don't see him going down and I don't really see him going up that high. I think we're going to be at this kind of level for, you know, for many, many, even many years, you know, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't disagree. I think we're in for a significant case of what I call the pukies which is it's just, it's just deliberate and boring and, and painful and everybody feels the pain. And that, that, you know, that number of people just gets worse and worse and worse. And it's to the point where you might get freeze up, but you probably won't. It's just more, you know, when we last talked, I said, you know, transactions are going to fall 50%. We're pretty darn close to that. You know, and we were tracking it over 7 million and now we're going to be tracking in like the mid to high threes that hurts home builders because they got to build, but they just stop building if they can't sell the properties. So all these cancellations on contracts, of course, they're going to keep on happening because it took the builder six to nine months to build it. Six months ago, you could get an under five rate. Can't get that rate anymore. You know, now it's in this high sixes, low sevens. And so now they're doing things like buying down the rate to try and still get the people to follow through on the house or giving them a three, two, one combination on their loan, which says we take 3% off for year one and 2% off for year two and 1% off for year three. And then it goes gradually back into what your normal payment would be. You start to see more elaborate construct of products um, that the, that the home buyers or the home sellers, excuse me, the, the builders that they're using. And then you'll also start to see, um, you know, create creativity from the banks because they make their money. Most people don't know that 90% of those mortgages, they don't even hold, they sell them, they sell them right away. And so they're just getting paid to service it. So what they, what do they have to do? They have to create enough loans to service. Otherwise they have more people than what they need. And that's where a lot of the big layoffs will start coming. I think from, you know, the, the mortgage servicers and from, you know, from mortgage companies, I think that's going to be like the next round of, or the, the next big round of layoffs outside of tech you know, where a lot of those companies just ballooned and were made to, you know, got too big. But the biggest difference between now, I hear it all the time. You probably do too. 08 and 09, that crash then, it's just completely different. It's not the same. It's yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think the 08 financial crisis and the housing market debacle and everything that happened there, I do not think we're in the same environment right now. Um, there's a lot of like similarities in like the feelings of it. Sure. But it's it's not it's it's not the same thing because we're not basically what I don't see is those toxic assets that are flooding the mortgage backed securities. 
that's like the, that was the big deal back then is that these things started to go to go bad and everybody was holding them and so right. here you had pension funds and banks and all these people who were sitting on these horribly toxic assets that the federal reserve needed to buy up and so they basically bailed it out back then well we don't have that same situation like you know i mean the the people who are getting mortgages now are people who are qualified for them. i mean for the most part i would think lending uh, lending now is far more strict than it was then there's no fog of mirror test now there was then uh, and then you're looking at like 05, 06, and even part of seven, the vintage, that vintage of loan, you know, about 50% of those were uh, arms, adjustable rate mortgages. And a lot of them were two and twenties, which is a payment for two years that was far lower than your actual payment, which was, which is what it was going to be for the next 28. So as soon as people hit the reset, they were in trouble. Um, there were adjustable rate mortgages that were pick your payment for the first two years, literally pick your payment. And then it would recap on that 28 year amortization as opposed to the 30. But if you didn't really make that big of a payment, your, your, it could double your payment could double. So there were a lot of nasty types of loan programs out there that the bankers didn't really understand or they understood them and they were bad. They knew that they were, you know, risky loans. Um, but buyers were just happy to get a yes answer. And so they would just do it. But, you know, 50% of the loans that were done back then, a little more, were, were adjustable rate mortgages. And now in 2020, it was 2% of the market. In 2021, it was 4% of the market. And now in 2020, uh, 2022, so 2021 was 4%. 2022 is about 11%. But even the stuff that they have now is not short term. It's not short duration. It's not one year or two year teasers. Most of the stuff that I've seen is five, seven or 10 year uh, adjustable rate debt. But it's so inexpensive for five years that for some, they probably are willing to take that gamble. And then, you know, it is a roll of the dice to see where we are in five years and, you know, see if five years are principal pay down um, and see if where the market is necessarily for you to be able to sell your house because you're probably buying that deal with, you know, three and a half or 5% down. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to look at it. I think that the asset class now also with them, essentially slicing and dicing those MBSs where they could take one loan and spread it into 10 different portfolios. That was also the death nail. What it did, what it did was, is it created contagion. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't like, here's, here's your bucket of junk that you can pay 60 cents on the dollar for. It was, we're pretty sure that we got enough product in there to make it an A or a double A or a triple A. And because we did enough to make it that, there's still contagion in there. And then most of those, uh, most of those uh, assets collapse once you hit an 8% default rate. That's why subprime loans on cars right now are getting crushed. Mm -hmm. You know, they have way more than an 8% default rate. And so that's going to, that's going to, I don't know if it will collapse the used car market, but it will certainly put it in severe correction. And right. quite frankly, it should, who should buy a car and three years later, have it be worth more money. That's exactly right. That's not a. That's not real. That's not realistic. That's not like, a depreciating you know, asset that has more mileage on it, right? You know. Right. I mean, you know, it just it would just naturally occur that it would lose value unless it was something unique and collectible, right? I mean, that would uh, that would be the only reason why it wouldn't. So it shows that you're in a in an obscured market, and that's not really the time you would really want to be buying into a used car. When you have a moving up in value every year, you want to like you want to be in a position. I mean. Like, obviously, if you bought a car, you would want it to go up in value. But, you know, when you're in a realistic in 
naturally occurring market, then you would see a depreciation on those used cars. And that's when you would really want to know that that's like a realistic market to be in. Yeah. I mean, um, I, was, I was offered $15,000 for my O2 truck. I was just like, I paid 6,500 bucks for it, but what am I going to replace it with? That's why I didn't sell it. I was like, I can't just sell it to make money because I got to go buy something else. And I didn't want an $800 payment. Right. And that's, I mean, I, I, to be honest with you, that is exactly the same thing. Like, I mean, I bought this car a while ago because it had, you know, it was cheap. It was good gas mileage. And then the price of vehicles went up so much. I'm like, I really like this car now. I mean, it was <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it, you know, I just can't see to me, honestly, like, I just can't see spending that much money on something like that, that I just need to use to drive around. Like, I don't, I don't have, like, I don't need to impress people that much to, to have a better vehicle. So um, I think about like this vehicle gives me the ability to go and take my family on, you know, trips on the weekends and do all the other stuff that I like to do. Cause I don't have to worry about coming up with the money to have a nice car. You know? Well, so. it means, it means we don't have to tell our kids every single time they come in and go, Hey, can we go take a trip? And you go, you'll look in the garage. That's your trip. There's your trip. Yeah, that's <laughs> exactly right. Um, I have to tell you, Matthew, my mom loves your channel. She watches you everything you do. There is wow. never a minute that she misses. And so I asked her, okay, what's the question you want for the lumberjack landlord? Yeah. Um, she wants, because she was in real estate and she, um, you know, she did okay, but there was some issues that she had come up. And one of the things that she was not aware of and that she would, uh, she asked a question on, and I guess probably it would be advice for those who are getting into real estate, taxes, yeah. taxes and fees, something that she was not prepared to deal with. And this was like the hidden thing that nailed her. Okay. So uh, give some uh, give some ideas on that, like to the people who are trying to get in or maybe who have just started in the game when it comes to taxes and fees. Yeah, I think so. I know that there's a lot of areas in the country that have HOAs and those HOAs fees can be absolutely astronomical. Um, as a rule for me, I don't invest in anything that has an HOA because they just fee the heck out of you. Um, and the challenge What's an HOA, let our, yeah. let our viewers know what an HOA so is. So a homeowners association, um, is where, what you'll find with a lot of newer neighborhoods or, or neighborhoods with homes in them that were kind of built as a, as a group together. You'll see that a lot in condos as well. Homeowners associations. Uh, so big neighborhoods, condos, um, depending on the town that you have or the township that you live in, they might have uh, certain areas that are HOA, homeowners association. And really what it is, is it's a big, long book of rules of all the things that you need to follow. And then you have to pay to have that administered. <laughs> so uh, it's, you know, they take care of the lawn cutting or they take care of, you know, uh, plowing or whatever it is can be part of a homeowners association, that HOA. And so you can see fees on older properties as they get older and they need more work. You can see HOAs go to 300, 400, $500 a month. That could be all your profit. That could be all of your profit on an investment property. And so wow. one of the things, yeah. So it's one of those things that can absolutely flip your business upside down. So always look to see if the property that you're looking at is an HOA. There's also hundreds, if not thousands of horror stories for having renters in HOAs where HOAs have started passing rules saying no more than 10% of the units can be utilized for rental units. And what ends up happening is, is that there's been scenarios. Uh, my buddy Dion talks about this. One, there was a scenario where basically somebody had a unit, they'd rented it out for years. 
some other units had gotten rented. It got them to basically where they were over the quota of the number of houses they were allowing to rent. His unit then got vacant and they said, you can't rent it. We're already at capacity. That's what the HOA says. Oh, so he had a property with a, with a steady renter who left, but because they had met their quota, he couldn't fill that rental income Correct. or rental property, and he was losing the, wow, Correct. that is a horror story. I yep. mean, because now what do you do? You're forced to sell, right? You better, if you didn't want to sell, they're not in a position to do it yet. You yeah. better get ready to move or live in it. Like that's your, you know, that's your option. So yeah, yeah. That, that can be a scary thing. And then the taxes side of things, I, I am, I think, you know, 44,000 pages of tax law. I'm not that smart. And so I just make sure that I have a great accountant. And the, the thing that I always look for is an accountant that is also an investor himself, because he's, I'm going to human nature. He is always going to look out for himself first and foremost. He's always going to stay up on the rules, laws, and regulations when it comes to rental rules and laws and how you recognize the income and, you know, different credits that you can get. So I always have a CPA that is actually also a property investor because I know that he'll be up on all the rules. Um, and, you know, my, my accountant, uh, Bob, accountant, Bob, he's amazing. Um, but yeah, that's, I always make sure that I have a guy who's actually doing what I'm doing, maybe not to the same scale, but because he's doing what I'm doing, he's watching out for those things. So when um, something called a cost segregation study, that was a big thing that was in the tax breaks. Uh, you know, they started doing them more and more in the last few years based on some other laws that had passed. He said, you need to be doing these. And I said, okay, tell me what it is. He had to explain it to me. Once he explained it to me, I said, holy cow, that's like the holy grail. He's like, it's awesome. And so we started doing them because he's like, this is, it's in the tax code for you to use. Um, nice. So yeah, so the taxes, ta but your mom is dead on. Fees and taxes can absolutely crush and eliminate your profit. And it can actually turn it into something where you're writing a check every month to own it. Yeah, yeah. And that's a... Uh... See, now that's something like a lot of people just, you know, may not even take it into consideration or something when they go sure. into their properties or looking at properties, you know, like they may not have even considered something like that. And that adjusting, see, that's what I always like, to me, I get nervous. It's like when it's not what you thought it was going to be, you know, and all of a sudden, like here, these HO, you know, these homeowner association fees starts kicking up and starts cutting into your profit. Now, what do you do? You just like, there's nothing you can do about that, right? Sure. Try to get more rent out of your, you know, tenant or something like that. And, and you know how that works is probably not as easy to do as you, as people say it is. But yeah, that's uh, that's something like, you know, to definitely look into is the taxes and fees of the property that you're, that you're looking into. Um, yeah. What else should we talk about, Matthew? What, I mean, what I other think, things do we need to cover? Yeah, I think that, um, I think the biggest bugaboo that I have is people that want to die on the mountain of charts and graphs, especially from a real estate perspective. So most people don't know this, but most numbers that are reported are reported national numbers. The problem with national numbers is your individual hyper-local market could be completely different. And so for me, people are, you know, basically saying I'm my, my business is going to blow up. I don't know what I'm doing. I've been doing it for 22 years. We've done pretty well. But I think the big thing is, is that they have no idea what the balance sheet looks like. They have no idea any of those other pieces or elements. 
but they also don't know the local market. And that, believe it or not, is probably the most important thing is I know exactly what units rent for in my market. I know that um, Section 8 or housing that helps uh, that helps fo folks with affordable housing. I know that there's 100 open vouchers in my market right now that I can pick up the phone and call them and go, yeah, I'll take 150 less yours. It's just that simple. And so I think that people really need to be following people that are in it. That's what attracted me to your channel, um, you know, almost three years ago now. That's what really attracted me to your channel was the fact that you were working every day in a lumberyard and you were talking to customers, you were hearing what they were saying, you were sharing what they were feeling and then working what the government's doing and what the markets are doing in along with that. That's why your information's invaluable. And so for me, I leaned a lot on that because I didn't want to listen to some bonehead in the basement who can come up with a graph and justify his existence by saying, well, you see, this is, this, it, this is just like one other time in history, it's going to blow up. As we know, there's hundreds of factors. You know, if we go to a world war, guess what? All the charts are out the windows. It doesn't matter. You know, and that's the real key is I think people need to listen to people that are in it on a day on the daily, you know, um, I don't talk to construction guys that passed some construction exam. I talk to my guys, my builders that are out there every single day. My bankers, it's the same thing. You know, I'm not talking to an underwriter from a company that didn't do very well. I'm talking to bankers and companies that, are, you know, bankers that are in banks that are thriving and recognizing where they're getting more conservative and lending is getting more tight. Debt to income has to be better. So I'm interested in kind of your thoughts because I know that for me, my biggest takeaway from YouTube is there's a lot of posers getting pretty rich and they don't actually have any experience in the things that they're talking about. Um, I mean, honest to God, like this is going to be the number of people that are getting blown up because that they're endorsing this, that, or the other thing that was completely a Ponzi scheme, or it was just, you know, uh, the, the engine of the day was hopium and it's just crazy. And for me, it's like, I, I run my business every day. And so I just share that in hopes that people do the same work that I do in my market, that they do the same work in their market. So they can figure out, does this fit me? Does this, is this going to work for me? Is this a way that I can create a financial future for my family? That's different. So what are your you thoughts? Know, what, Cause I know you uh, watch a lot, a, a lot of YouTube. I do. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, when it comes down to it, like, I think um, something that you were kind of talking about earlier, and and, and for me, anyway, um, when, you, when you first started getting into real estate, when you first started doing it, you realized this was working for you. Yeah. Right. And that's, and that was the key to it. Like, you know, that, that was for me too. Like when I first put out some videos and people were like, man, I really like your videos. I like your perspective on things keep doing what you're doing. And I realized then it was like, I have a product here. Like yeah. this is working, you know? And what I've realized is that when I was putting out my videos, the reasons why they were working is because I was very honest yeah. about everything. Like, and I wasn't afraid about being wrong. Like, sure. even if, you know, if, I mean, I went against the grain and I'm like, I know I'm way out on a limb here, you know, but this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm saying. And I'm not going to go with the crowd just because that's what everybody's saying is happening, you know? <laughs> I'm going to go with what I, what I think is right. And, um, you know, and I think that's really where the key to just about anything that you're going to do is to be like, 
to be honest with it. Like, yeah. you know, I mean, not to be faking this thing right. when you're, when you're going forward. I mean, you were, you, you were dedicated to your projects, you were dedicated to your, to your positions, it, you know, and that's why it was successful. I mean, people were like, man, I can't figure out how come my renter doesn't pay, you know, me more millions of dollars or whatever, you know, like they're, they're not taking uh, responsibility for themselves mm -hmm. on, on things that that's going on out there. Um, I related down like simply to try and understand like what it is that I'm trying to express here is like I related down to like fishing mm -hmm. to me or being out there on that river out on the Columbia River. You know, we're all out there trying to do the same thing. We're all out there trying to catch fish. Right? But we're all driving different boats. Yep. And we're all in a different position out there on the river mm -hmm. and the way we conduct ourselves and what we do out there and how we catch our fish is going to be different from boat to boat to boat. Right? Absolutely. And you're going to find some people out there who just do it so well, yeah. like they just do it so well. And you ask them, how, how did, how did you do this? And they're like, I don't know. I've just been doing it a long time. They just have that feel for it. Right. Mm -hmm. Just like you, you know, when it comes to those properties and they tell you, oh, you're going to lose your entire business. No, you got to feel for it. You're a good fisherman, right? You know how to catch fish. And even when the environment is saying that there's no fish in the water, there's some fish out there, sure. you know? And that's, and that's really what it comes down to is living this thing honestly, you know, yeah. to know that, you know, you're actually doing what is true to you inside mm -hmm. and believing in that stuff. That's really how it comes down to it, no matter what it is, whether it's real estate or making videos. You know? I agree. I think it's just authenticity. You know, for me, it's like I share my wins and I share my failures. You know, we thankfully now that having done this for 22 years, I have a lot less failures um, and they're a lot smaller. That's the nice thing. They're, they're fewer and far further between, but they're also a lot smaller financially. So they're easier to, to grab a hold of and, and say, we, we can take care of that. And so I think the big thing for me is, again, it's, you know, I want to share my journey with other people, not sugarcoated. Here's exactly what happened. Here's exactly what I did. You know, I did one where I did an eviction video on my channel and I literally walked in the place and you can hear the sheriff in the back are going, this is the worst I've ever seen. And oh, that, was a, that was, that was, I was like, well, thanks for that title. <laughs> you know, And that was like, and that was like, that was like maybe 18 months ago or so, or 12 months ago or so it was right during COVID. Um, and so, you know, we did things like the emergency rental assistance program. Largely that is a, another huge government colossal failure. And for anyone to tell me otherwise, I actually was in the program. I was actually bringing the program units to put their tenants in. And that program was in, in our state was so unbelievably and horribly run that it really, um, they notified people uh, in November, nine days, uh, nine days before their rent was going to be due for December, that the program was being shut down. Yeah, talk about giving them uh, time to to prepare, right? You exactly. Know? <laughs> there's 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 not enough shifts between now and then to even work all of them and give all the money. Right. And so I went and had a meeting with them, and they said, "It is what it is. We're out of money." Okay. And they're like, "But we expect that you'll work with those tenants." Well, I'm going to kind of have to now, aren't I? But yeah, that's like where I have to jump in and do their job. So we actually reached out, we reached out to everybody and they were freaking out because they're just like, we just got told that our rent's not getting paid this month. It's like, yep, I was just told exactly the same. So let's figure something out. And so yeah. thankfully with almost all of them, we were able to figure something out and work with them. Um, and, you know, kind of, we'll see how it happens. 
you know, we didn't want to commit to anything long-term because, you know, we need to make sure that we're able to, it's going to be more, um, more administrative work to keep up with now because of, of how, you know, the different workouts that we did with our tenant, with the, with these tenants. Um, but yeah, I mean, Reagan's right about a lot of things, but he was wrong about this one. This is a government program that didn't last forever. Um, mm -hmm. And sadly, it disappeared literally overnight. On the 21st, they said, hey, it's suspended. On the 22nd, they said, hey, it's over. There's no more funding coming. And that's where you're going to see in a lot of states, a lot of states, there's going to be evictions from that because they were putting people, those programs were largely not just helping people, some people that were already paying rent and they were already in a unit and they started getting their rent paid for them. They maybe got three months or six months or nine months, but I had people that did it for 18 months, had everything paid for 18 months. One of them was over $40,000 in benefit and they didn't make the first month's payment coming out of it. They were given 90 day notice and 60 day notice and 30 day notice. And they still came out of it and they couldn't make the payment on the first. And I was really a big bummer because I'm a taxpayer like everybody else. That's money that came from taxpayers that was put into that program. And if people use it as a hand up, I am all for it. But too many people use it as a hand out and that's going to break a lot of stuff. And I feel bad for some of the smaller landlords that expected more of these programs um, and sure, is it, you know, their fault? Yeah. I mean, it, it is what it is. You know, everybody trusts what they trust. Um, but it's going to be painful. It's going to be painful for tenants. It's going to be painful for smaller, some smaller landlords that, you know, didn't have as much, much experience and kind of took, uh, the program's word for it that, oh, don't worry. It's going to be a six month letdown or, you know, whatever they were getting told. So yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not, I like to say it's not get rich quick. It's get rich for sure. Because over, for a, over a 10, 15, 20 year period, I don't know any landlord that held their properties that maintained them. I don't know anybody that ended up anywhere near even flat. Like they all had massive payoffs. You mm -hmm. know, I just bought some complete dumps that were going to completely gut and renovate. And you know, 10 years ago, I mean, I paid 350, they paid 220. And they ignored the building for 10 years, they didn't really put any money into it. So they were making money on rent all that time. Plus, they made the massive money when when they sold it to me. And now I'm going to put a bunch of money into it, make it that much nicer and upgrade it. Um, but that that person made a couple hundred thousand dollars on that unit in a little over 10 years and didn't do anything. They just, they didn't really do much of any work there. Not really my style. I like to continue to improve the area, continue to improve uh, the house because I want people to be proud of where they live and we won't rent out anything that we won't live in ourselves. So that's a good attitude to have. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we don't want them to, you know, it's just one of those things where I get it. There are bad landlords out there and there are plenty of bad tenants too. Mm -hmm. So Hopefully the, the hope is that they always find each other. Yeah. So. Um, let me yeah, ask you, man, is there, um, is there something inside of like, you know, say the housing market, financial market, mortgage market, something that you would like to see changed or is it just more of just adapting to the current situation for you? Um, 
so I would, I would love to see, I would love to see affordable housing. I would love to see affordable housing. Um, I think that what's really funny is, is when people root for a guy like me to lose because the market goes down 30%, I'm better capitalized than the other people. So I'll just buy more. You know, that's what I just don't think people like quite understand it. Like this is buying opportunity when stuff that happens like that happens. You there, know? there are trillions of dollars on the sidelines ready to buy property. Trillions. Yeah. And when it goes down 20 or 25 or 30%, if you've got a big pocket in that market, they're just going to buy, start buying it. And they're going to buy it before you and they can buy it for cash and they can close in seven days. So that's a done deal. The thing that I think I would like to see most is I would like to see things happen further down the line in high school. Even though I didn't go to high school, I would like to see people graduating with an understanding of economics, an, an operable understanding of economics, being able to balance a spreadsheet, understanding debt, understanding the important of a, importance of a credit score, um, understanding that you can absolutely be an entrepreneur in your, when you're 18 or 22 or 26. And if it doesn't work out, that's okay. You got tons of life left, but invest those that are looking to invest their time in something and get a return on it. I think we'll always largely end up winners. And I think that that changes the housing market because housing is a privilege. It, we have to earn it. You know, we have to earn the money to be able to buy it. And so I think that I'd like to see, I really would like to see better education around finances because I work with people in their twenties and in their thirties and some in their forties that really still have no idea how a mortgage works. And that's not a shameful thing. It's that's an indictment on how can you get to that point in life and not have had that experience? It's because, and these, some of these folks are people that graduated from college. I can't really talk. I'm a ninth grade dropout. Literally a 10th grader has more education than I do. So it really just comes down to the thing I'd like to see in the housing market most is more affordable homes. But I think that that comes from recognizing really two things. One is better, better financial education through high school and college with, that is applicable to real world. Because I think that that will have people making very different purchasing decisions and very different financial decisions, the way they live their life. Um, and I think the other side of that is cities and towns really tee off on builders and if you change zoning in a lot of areas, everybody says we need more affordable housing. And then as soon as they see the proposal that those 200 units are in their backyard, they're like, not in my backyard. You kind of can't have it both ways. You know, you kind of can't have it both ways. And so zoning, if you fix zoning, that helps a lot. So as an example, I was looking to add an ADU, an auxiliary dwelling unit or an added dwelling unit, ADU. I was looking to add that to one of my existing single family homes. As I looked to add that to my existing single family home, it was a $15,000 impact fee. It was a $9,000 hookup to the sewer fee. This is just so they have the right to charge me for water and sewer the rest of my life. I have to pay them nine grand for the opportunity. <laughs> and then it was $6,000 in survey fees. It was $4,000 in attorney fees to get it through the different boards in the city that it needed to go through. When it was all said and done, before I even moved an ounce of dirt, I was $35,000 into the project. Who do you think pays that? Yes, I pay it up front, but I see it on the back end, but that's who pays that. And so if you, the other thing too is, and, and when you talk about those ADUs, which is just better use 
of that land. If you have a neighbor that has a house and they have either on an acre, how much does it hurt to put a unit above the garage? That's a brilliant thing. It helps, you know, it, it helps people get on the property ladder because they can get some income from their garage or they get some income from another unit that's there. That's the whole purpose of house hacking is somebody helping pay your mortgage, yeah. you know? So that's what I would like to see change in the housing market is um, zoning would, would make a huge difference. Um, zoning would make a lot of changes and then just financial education in the high school and, and college years would change people buying a lot of the things that they want to remaining to buy a lot of the things that they need. Um, that way they can, you know, get into a house sooner. You know, yep. people coming back from people coming back from World War II weren't buying iPhones and televisions. Yep. You know, and and yep. seventy thousand dollar trucks. Yeah, right for sure. No, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, you know, financial education within this country just, just seems to be non-existent. Um, you know, uh, it's it amazes me even like you know the people who are close to me, like my coworkers and some of my family and stuff like that. You know, I'll start talking about the bond market and, you know, you'll get that glazed look over their face. And I'm like, yeah. wow, you know, and I talk about this stuff like every day, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. so. Um, so, yeah, I could really see where that would really change a lot of the um, issues that we have going on right now is just people are just a little bit more aware of how the financial market works, how the monetary system, you know, how interest rates are set these things are very confusing and it's really difficult to, to wrap your head around them. And most people will just like, you know, they give it about five minutes and they're like, ah, this is too much, you know, and, and then they back away from it. So yeah, I could really see where that can make a big difference in it. Um, and I agree with the zoning. Like I talk to a lot of builders and I'm like, Hey man, what do you, you know, what could we do to get cheaper housing? And they're like, I don't know, man, we need to build the most expensive house we can in order to get the profit margin we exactly. need. You know, exactly. And that sucks, you know, because that means there is no cheap homes coming, you know? And so, um, like, I don't think a lot of people quite realize that, that, you know, when a builder goes to build a home, there's a certain percentage of profit margin that they're going to get. So if you're building, you know, 1800 square foot ranch style home, that's like the cheapest thing on the market the builder may get a few thousand dollars off of that, where if they go in to build the half a million dollar home, that's really okay. extravagant with all the detail, they might profit, you know, 50, 60, $70,000 off right. of it or something like that. So there's a huge change in the amount of margin that they're going to get by building an expensive home. And that's why they go for it. It's just simply no money in the cheaper ones, unless they can knock it out in time, you know, it's, right. it, time would be the thing that they would make it up in. And, yeah. That, and that's, and that's really the thing like density, you know, so Density is a big, big thing, you know, and if you're going to typically, you know, some builders at are at 20% or 22 and some are at 16 and some are at 18. And so it's kind of all around there and no, it's not always an even number. Um, but as you look at those builders, would you want to make 18% of 800,000 or 18% of 350,000? Right. And when you're only able to build a certain amount of homes, you got to make them as big as you possibly can. So long as that's not you know, not fitting of the market. Like that's, a, that's something that will never sell there, right? Because it's an $800,000 home in an area where no house has ever sold for more than 400. Then you're building something that is just, you know, built on hopium. Um, but that's the biggest issue. That's the biggest concern, you know, for, for us, um, you know, we, we would love to do, you know, plans like cities that are going to be smart are going to be ones that say, Hey, we're pro, you know, pro ADU. And so if you have this big of a lot, we want you to build an ADU and that's going to help solve the, the, the inventory issue in the market. 
you know, in my market right now, there's like nine unit in a, in a city of 27,000 people, there's nine units on the market right now. Wow. Nine. Um, so what, what do you think it should be? Like what um, would be normal or what would be correct? Yeah. yeah, that's a good, that's a really good question. I think, um, I would like, so this kind of a market favors the dumb. And what I mean by that is you can be a bad landlord. You can have a lousy property and it's still going to get rented out. I liked, I like, I like supply in my markets because then I set, I set myself apart, better service, better product, better experience. So they hit utopia when they get me as a landlord versus the other guy, but they might not have a chance because the, the story that hurt my feelings the most or bothered me the most was I had one couple say to me that they'd spent $750, $750 on applications for apartments and they hadn't gotten one over a six month period. And let me tell you, they weren't that bad. They had mid sixes credit scores. Uh, they both had jobs. They were gainfully employed. They, 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 they were there. And so, yeah, that kind of got me a little bit. And I just said, all right, sounds good. So we actually, we have never charged for applications. We don't believe in it. We don't like those landlords that are out there that like the churn and they just like collecting application fees. But I think one of the things that really has to change is the more supply that's there. And this isn't a fast fix, right? The cities have to be more acceptable of, you know, freeing up some zoning. The, um, cause you can't, when you're building a bunch of brand new stuff, you have to get the top of the market. It's all a class stuff. So we need B and C class stuff to come up. Well, the only way that you can do that in a lot of cases is getting people to trade up to the A class. But now that gap is so big. And so one of the things that I teach a lot is living in, instead of that A class, which is brand new, living in the B and C stuff, because people will trade down from A to B. Some will trade down from B to C, but no one's trading down from C to D. So that, and, and you will still have in any economy, you'll still have people moving up from C to B and from B to A. I don't like A because they can trade down to B. So I live my life in B and C properties. That's what we do. We want to have A class properties in B and C uh, at B and C price points and B and C um, uh, condition, you know, conditions. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's, there's no easy, fast fix for it. I wish there were, um, but it's going to take cities can being, considerate and understanding that a lot of things can change, but people actually had to start taking the steps to change them. You know, just sitting there in the council meeting, just going, yep, affordability is really a problem. Well, you just had a developer that was in there that was talking about the fact that if you would let him do it, he'll put 60 units on this land. Yeah. We just don't think that's in the spirit of the neighborhood. I don't want to hear it then. You can't have it yeah. both ways. So yeah, that's, that's my take on it for sure. Very cool. Matthew, I could hang out with you all day, man. Me too, man. <laughs> Good time. Um, yeah. So, you know, tell our viewers how they can get a hold of you or where they can follow you at. Sure. Yeah. Lumberjack Landlord on YouTube and also on Instagram. Um, you will see all of our projects as we do the work in our projects. You know, so we actually, we're from a really old part of the country. And so we actually work on projects that are 160 and 180 years old where we're still, you know, getting into chestnut and rough cut beams. 
Um, and so we do a lot of fun stuff, but yeah, check me out on YouTube on lumberjack landlord and on Instagram there. And then every Sunday I do a 90 minute live stream where I just answer people's questions for them. You know, that way we can try and help out potential landlords, get some answers to questions that they might have. Awesome. So if you are getting into the rental space, real estate space, or just have curiosity on what's going on in this space, Sundays, at what time do you do 11, that? 11.30 a.m. Eastern time. 11.30 a.m. Eastern. Go check out Lumberjack Landlord and ask him your questions. Absolutely. I know that mom is tuned in every Sunday on that. <laughs> um, so I catch her the road. I was like, what are you listening awesome. to Lumberjack? Absolutely. You know? Awesome so, <laughs> Yeah, I pop in and uh, hang out with her for a few minutes every once in a while myself. So mm-hmm. maybe I'll tune in this Sunday and uh, and hang out and ask you a few questions myself. So Love it. really looking forward to it. Thank you, Matthew. Anytime, man. I'm excited to do this. And people, recession suck. They don't feel good. We're all going to feel a little bit of case of the pukies, but stay strong. Keep on, keep focus, keep showing up every day and doing what you do. Nothing is that bad. It just isn't. You can work through it. You know, and I think um, something we'll just, you know, cut this out here, but uh, I think something you said earlier, um, you know, over the last couple of years, when prices were moving up really fast, anybody could be in the game, make money at it. You know, it's now is the time. If you can make it through this, like through these hard times, this is how you, this is how you build up the skills and the stability to really do well during the good times. Right. So if you can make it through the hard times, that's the uh, strength that you need in order to uh, be really successful. So yeah, yeah, don't be discouraged at this point. Right. Uh, Don't be discouraged. I mean, the adjustments are going to come. It's like rain in Oregon. (laughs) It's like rain in Oregon. (laughs) It's just like that. And so it's like snow in the Northeast during the wintertime. It happens. And so, you know, I think we're going to see a 10 to 20% correction. I think that's what happens nationally. And to get to 10 to 20% correction, that means you're going to have some fall less than 10% and some fall more than 20 and some 30. I think the, the areas that had eye buyers, I think are going to be in the most trouble because they were the ones, you know, some markets have literally 15% of their market of houses listed is by one eye buyer or two eye buyers. Holy moly. That's going to, yeah. Phoenix, I think is going to be ground zero. I think Phoenix is going to be ground zero and maybe Vegas. They're going to be, they're going to, they're going to see the hot spots. They're going to see the biggest tumbles. I think, I mean, I think Austin's going to get hit a little bit, but they're getting a lot of high tech jobs pushed there. So yeah, I think that I think Phoenix is gonna gonna struggle. I think Seattle is gonna struggle because they've they've passed a lot of non-rent control, rent control stuff. And anybody that studied that in history, that's the fastest way to see an increase in your rents. Is yeah. is you know, is guarantee that a landlord can't raise it to market, that they have to do it every year. That means your rent's gonna go up every single year, which you know, I wanted to be in a state that didn't have that because I wanted to be able to work with my tenants. If you're a great tenant and it doesn't cost much to to maintain the property, I just need to make my peace. That's it. You know, yeah. it doesn't need to be bleeding edge. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Matthew. Anytime, buddy. My pleasure. Appreciate you. Great. Great. Yeah, as always. You. Awesome. Thanks, pal. We'll see Thank you soon. You. See you.